This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Obadiah, and uh, I'm going to buy you some time to find that. We're starting a series, five-week series today, called Few Words, Big Truths. We're going to do something fun. We're going to tackle the five books of the Bible that have just one chapter. When's the last time you heard a sermon on the book of Obadiah? Have any of you heard ever a sermon on the book of Obadiah? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you remember the one you heard? (laughs) Uh, So we're going to dig into this one. Hopefully you have found it by now. And I want to cue this up by talking a little bit about the context to the literary genre Obadiah is a part of. Obadiah is part of the minor prophets. Not minor as in unimportant, minor because they're small. And one of the themes that it addresses, that it picks up, is over a question, does God have enemies? Does God have enemies? Now, if you are one type of Muslim, you would say, yes, God's enemies are the Americans and Israelis. If uh, you're a Hindu nationalist, you might say, yes, God's enemies are the Muslims and the Christians. But maybe for Christians, we find that question puzzling. Does God have enemies? People have enemies, sure. But are enemies something God even does? That even something God does. It's one of the things that the minor prophets wrestle with and included within there is the Old Testament's shortest book, Obadiah. Just one chapter weighing in at 291 Hebrew words. And it's a unique book among the 12 minor prophets because Obadiah's message is directed at a people who knew very little theology and have no place for knowledge of God in their lives. In other words, he spoke to a society much like our own. What I want to do with really each one of these is to make sure you understand the book. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, which includes Obadiah. So I want to walk through it. We'll make some observations about it, and then I'll conclude with some application. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. Now, we don't really know much about Obadiah. There are 12 different people in the Old Testament with his name, but none appear to refer to the same person. We know that Obadiah means servant of the Lord, but that's about it. Whoever this Obadiah is, he's given a vision through which a message is conveyed to Edom, Israel's eastern neighbor. Just as Israel's patriarch was Jacob, Edom's patriarch was Jacob's twin brother, Esau. Now, you know the conflicted relationship between those two brothers. They tussled in the womb. They had a contentious relationship throughout their lives both by divine decree and with some amount of irreverence on Esau's part, Jacob was the favored son. 
And so these two nations have a long and rich lineage that ties them together. The message conveyed to Edom is striking. The Lord has called an envoy of the nations to rise in battle against them. So Obadiah is a prophecy regarding God's judgment of Edom. And the means that God employs, very interesting, is raising up other pagan nations to battle against her. Why? Well, we'll get to that shortly. Verse 2, see, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. So the result of this divine call to arms will be the rendering of Edom to the ash heap of insignificance. Malachi, another minor prophet, written after Obadiah, records the results of this divine judgment. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. By 312 BC, Edom was no longer a nation, but it was now firmly in the hands of the Nabataean people. God's word concerning Edom came true. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So what is the reason for this divine summons of pagan nations to overthrow Edom? Well, it's their reputation for delusional self-confidence. It was legendary. They touted an invulnerability, invincibility, impregnability. It wasn't a smugness that existed only in their self-perception either. Edom enjoyed a rather strategic advantage over her neighbors as a result of her geographical setting. If you were to look at a topographical map, uh, you would see as, as you move eastward, you would see you've got Israel, then you, you move in, up in elevation, uh, to, to Edom. And by the way, Petra today was Edom. Famous today. It was Edomite country. Uh, the land passage through this territory was often difficult, narrow, between towering rocks, a way that is easily blocked by a few well-placed soldiers. So geographically, Edom is impregnable to outside military forces, which puffed up her national pride to a point of arrogance. Edom was convinced of her inviolability enough to brag about it. But notice what the text says. Notice who it, who it will be that will bring this nation down. It is the Lord. While the Lord may use an envoy of neighboring nations to pillage Edom, God doesn't want us to think the blind forces of politico-military movements are the primary cause of Edom's fall. No, the fall of any nation is God's doing. Verse 5, if thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. At this point, 
The Lord's not talking about Edom's losses to enemy armies, but clandestine attacks. This is salt into the wound. Now, in the middle of describing this, there's this interjection. Oh, what a disaster awaits you. It's not an expression that denotes joy over another person's grief, but rather shock and mourning. The Lord and thus Obadiah express horror rather than glee over the demise of Edom. One thinks of the tears that Jesus shed as he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, pronouncing impending judgment on the land. Verse 7, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. So rather than receiving support from expected friends, they find their friends to be enemies. Now, it's at this point it's worth noting why the title Sovereign Lord is used at the beginning of the book. Every security Edom once had, the Lord has turned on its head. There is nowhere Edom can hide to shield themselves from the turning tide. Verse 8, in that day declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. So the Lord promises that he will not only deprive Edom of tactical geographic advantage, verses 2 through 4, and strength derived from either wealth or allies in verses 5 through 7, but he also will deny them two other means of national support, the wise and the strong. The wise men are important figures in the court and society, providing sage intellectual insight or good sense, as well as practical skill. Edom had a particularly strong tie to wisdom. The wise man Job comes from Uz which while unidentified is associated with Edom in Lamentations 4. And one of his friends, Eliphaz, also has links with Edom. Verse 10, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So starting in verse 10, the Lord is elaborating further on the reasons for his judgment of Edom. It's not just their pride, but their violence and non-involvement. And while getting to that, the Lord emphasizes the fraternal relationship between Israel and Edom. Edom's mistreatment of Israel wasn't conducted against an enemy or even just a neighbor, but one's own family. Edom did nothing while Babylon pillaged his brother. Verse 12, you should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hang over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So you see... Israel's, uh, Edom's mistreatment of Israel is not just relegated to the category of non-involvement, but graduated to mental assault as they rejoiced maliciously over their downfall and physical assault. Now, God's use of the term, my people, to describe Israel will be important 
when we look at the application to this. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. The day of the Lord is a phrase used often in the Old Testament. It doesn't originate with Obadiah. Most likely the first prophet to use this was Amos. It concerns a time of divine intervention in history, bringing good and blessing on those who please the Lord and gloom and destruction on his foes. We're also introduced to what is known as lex talionis. As you have done, it will be done to you. So the day of the Lord will be a time of retributive justice when the deeds of wicked nations will come back on their own heads. Verse 16, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. Obadiah declares that all the strangers and foreigners who entered the gates of Jerusalem, carried off Israel's nobility, cast lots for the city, will drink the fury of the Lord's wrath. The cup of God's wrath is an image used periodically throughout the scriptures. Lamentations 4 mentions specifically that Edom must drink the cup of God's wrath. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. And people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The last verses are full of hope for a decimated people. Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God, Israel's promised land and home will be restored. There's a complete turnaround of fortunes. All of this by grace, as the term inheritance indicates. These verses depict the reconstitution of God's people and judgment of God's foes. That's the book of Obadiah. What do we learn from it? Let me mention three points of application. One of the things we cannot miss is God's opposition to pride. God's opposition to pride. The immediate hit you between the eyes application of Obadiah is God's opposition to national pride. Edom's smugness is on full display. The pride of your heart has deceived you, says the Lord. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle, in your heads you think you do, I will bring you down. These are people who have a superiority complex about their nation. 
They believe they are impenetrable, invulnerable, immune to threats. And the Lord finds this attitude utterly repugnant. David Baker commenting on this says, National pride is a characteristic of nations in the biblical period and even today. What starts as justifiable pride in national achievements can become chauvinistic when others are either ignored in their need or put down as below one's self-inflated position of superiority. The Lord is patient, but he will not allow this self-inflated national pride to proceed unchecked. We have ample evidence to that fact. There's a YouTube video which quickly documents the 100 largest empires of human history. As I watched it, what I was struck by is that 99 of the 100 no longer exist. The only one that currently exists is the newest one, the United States. I would venture to say that national pride was a precursor to the downfall of these 99. What do the scriptures teach? Pride comes before the fall. So the second half of God's message to Edom is a reality check. Look, God says, you are not what you think you are. Despite appearances, they're vulnerable. No nation is too big to fail. No nation is so powerful that God can't dismantle it in short order. And note well the tactics the Lord employs in dismantling Edom. He hits them in the very spots they believe to be their strengths. Geography, economy, intelligence, armies. With a snap of a finger, the very things Edom sees as reasons for their invincibility are shown to be a house of cards. The Lord hit them where it hurts. Now, as we look at that list, maybe there's a little bit of distance between us and how that works out today because you know, most people depend on things other than, or think they depend on things other than agriculture for their livelihood. So the examples from this sphere have maybe less immediate or transparent impact to a modern audience than to Obadiah's original audience. But we could think through modern-day equivalents. The dreaded pink slip the compounded threat of loss of retirement and medical benefits because of either corrupt financial practices or the threatened collapse of a social security system. This creates the same anxiety today as it did the loss of a crop or treasure in the ancient world. And just like Edom would look to turn to friends who in the end disappoint them, today... The corporate or governmental friend that is expected to be available might prove illusory or be an enemy. 
The lesson that Edom learned and one we need to heed today is taught in Daniel 4. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? But it would be prudent to note that not only does God oppose national pride, but individual pride as well. The attitudes conveyed collectively within the nation of Edom can very easily be embodied by individuals. What are you trusting in for your own security? For the future, this life, in what do you place your confidence to face any storm in your future? A home and a safe neighborhood? Financial resources? Wealth? Friends who stand by you? Physical health and strength. When the day of the Lord comes, you're going to need something more than all of those. When the day of the Lord comes, you're going to need something more than all of those. Thomas Case, who was a pastor in the 17th century in England, once told his congregation this, he said, God teaches us in affliction that one thing is necessary. Affliction reveals how mistaken we are about our must-bes and necessities. In our health and liberty, we think this thing must be done. We think riches and honors are necessary, and we must have our estates and lay up large portions for our children. But in the day of adversity, when death looks us in the face and God causes the horror of the grave, the dread of the last judgment, and the terrors of eternity to pass before us, then we put our mouths in the dust and sigh, oh, how I have been mistaken. I have fed upon ashes and my deceived heart has turned me aside. We can now see how the pardon of sin and interest in Christ A sense of God's love and the assurance of glory are the only indispensables. Christ alone is the one thing necessary, and all others are but maybes at best. Second, God opposes those who oppose his people. Edom's pride isn't the only feature which draws the sharp end of God's judgment. It's also their treatment of his people, my people, God says. Edom's clear demonstration of violence and non-involvement towards the people of God arouses the wrath of God. And this is meant to be a comfort to the church. It's reminiscent of Revelation 6 where we see Christian martyrs praying. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, there are people out there who find this to be an inappropriate prayer. Surely, they say, this doesn't square with what the Lord Jesus himself demonstrated on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
Or Stephen, the first Christian martyr, crying out in Acts 7, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. But this prayer in Revelation 6 seems like bloodthirsty vengeance. How do we sort these things out? Well, if you come to a passage like this and you absolutize it, then what you get is a kind of warrant for endless prayers for vendettas and judgment and vengefulness. On the other hand, there is a streak within Western liberal Christianity that quotes the Lord's words on on the cross as if it's the only way the Bible speaks about how Christians pray in regard to persecutors. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But somehow they're not concerned for all the passages that speak of the holy anger of God, the justice of God, the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. They're not interested in justice or holiness unless it happens to be the justice that's on the current political agenda. But not justice from God's point of view, that which protects his sanctity, that is devoted to his holiness, that's passionate about upholding his supreme value. Now, if you absolutize one or the other, you lose something in Scripture. It's important that Christians not be bitter, vengeful people. It's important that we be forbearing. It's also important that we be passionate about holiness and concerned about upholding God's name and integrity. These people under the altar in Revelation 6 are not individually going up to God and saying, I want justice done. I was martyred and it wasn't fair. That's not what they're saying. They're not crybabies. They're in the presence of God. And as they see the transcendent splendor of the throne room of God, collectively they say, how long, O Lord? How long, Do you put up with this? Are you not concerned to enact judgment? Your people, your covenant community died. The more you clearly see the glory and holiness of God, the more you'll pray prayers like this. Obadiah fuels prayers like this. And I would suggest it positions us to live out Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Third and finally, We get a good glimpse at the restoration of God's people. Verse 17 to the end is all about the restoration of God's people. Its immediate fulfillment took place in 537 BC under the leadership of a man by the name of Zerubbabel. But there's a theologically loaded word in Obadiah that's used throughout scripture to describe a Christian's salvation is by grace alone. The term is inheritance. An inheritance is earned by someone else and given to you because of familial bonds. This is grace upon grace. This is 
Grace raised to the second power. Why? We're not born children of God. The imagery the Bible uses again and again is adoption. Someone not part of the family is brought into the family. Prior to this, we're orphan Annie, waiting, maybe hoping if we haven't succumbed to cynicism that someone will adopt us. But the power to do so is entirely out of our hands. No orphan forces the adoption to happen. We're adopted by grace. But God takes it further. Not only does the Lord adopt us into his family on his initiative, not ours, (laughs) he writes us into his will. An inheritance awaits us. An inheritance someone else earned is given to us because of adopted familial bonds. Grace to the second power. And of course, this inheritance was earned through the perfect life Jesus lived and the death he died in your place. Now this promise of inheritance that the Lord speaks of to his people, this is important, listen carefully, was not immediately experienced by them. At the time Obadiah is written, they were still living in a time of distress. When the only thing they had was hanging on in hope to the promises of God. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Aren't we in the same spot? So what do you do? What do you do? You hang on to the promises of God. There was a pastor who illustrated this. He was watching a Final Four NCAA college basketball game. He says, I was texting, as I was watching, I was texting my friends, and there came a time when Baylor took out one of its star players, and Gonzaga started to make its run, and I was infuriated. I was in the group chat saying, I can't believe they did that. Things are going to turn out bad. My friend said, what are you talking about? He's back in. And I realized there was a lag in my internet connection. (laughs) And as the game went on, he said, it got worse and worse and worse. The announcer's voice would say, and he made the shot. But on my screen, the guy's still dribbling. And I realized, oh, I see what's happening here. I was so anxious, he says, about really wanting to win that game when I discovered there was a lag in my connection. What I didn't do is log on or try to fix it. I just let it stay there. He said, do you know why? (laughs) He said, because I trusted the announcer's voice. I didn't think he was going to lie. I know that his word preceded what would happen. So I let him speak. I waited. I didn't worry. 
I celebrated when he spoke, not when I saw what took place. Obadiah's message of hope for God's people is like enduring lagging internet. What you see happening in front of you is behind what you have heard announced. Do you trust the announcer's voice? But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words to us. thank you, God, that what we see happening around us is not the last word. You have spoken and it will come to be. And what will come to be is something beautiful. So Lord, I pray that in the waiting in the waiting. We would trust your voice. Despite what we see happening unfold around us, your word will be the last word. Lord, we do thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. The restoration that's in our future is not due to what we have done, but the life he lived and the death he died. (laughs) The inheritance is sure for those who are in Christ. Work these truths into our lives, I pray. Amen. Get your communion elements out. As we come to the table, I want to return briefly to the opening question. Does God have enemies? Does God have enemies? At one point in time, and maybe still, we were God's enemies. Paul writes in Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Romans chapter 5, Paul says, while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. You know, Obadiah reminds us that the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. So how does anyone escape this? All nations. No one escapes this. Not you, not me. We're included in God's warning to all nations. But the good news that Paul tells us 
is the ultimate day of the Lord with all its ferocity came on Good Friday. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserved. That is, Jesus received God's just wrath against our sins so that by faith we can get what he deserved. And what is that? All the privileges, the rights, the blessings and honor that Jesus' perfect life garnered in the eyes of the Father. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserved so that by faith we can get what he deserved. An inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. After giving thanks to the Father, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. In the same manner also, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's partake together. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would not let us escape the hopeless condition we found ourselves in. When your word describes us as your enemies, it's not hyperbole. It's stating reality. We were your enemies determined to live our lives the way we saw fit. Determined to go our own way. Determined to call our own shots. Determined to to define good and evil the way we see fit. But you're the kind of God who has poured out an enormous love in our lives. Through the life, the death, the resurrection of your son Jesus. And so we stand to give you praise, to give you honor, to give you glory for what you alone have accomplished. Give us hope. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.